The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Do you do you hear that? It's the calm after the storm. Referring, of course, to the calm after the absolute flurry of legislating last week, as those papers that flew around even up to the wee hours of January 6th are still being mopped up as the governor gets to the end of his 10 days to review those stacks of papers that got delivered to his desk up until the Senate adjourned just before 5 a.m. on its uh, final night or morning of sessions. But January is all about new beginnings, and we've got all sorts of new beginnings, whether it be the legislature or the National Guard uh, sending some personnel down to D.C. ahead of the inauguration, or a Cannabis Control Commission back at full strength as uh, they head into 2021. So to join us this week on the Statehouse Takeout, we've got a full house of Statehouse News Service reporters, Chris Lasinski, Colin A. Young, Matt Murphy, and Katie Lannon, to uh, talk about the start of this new year. Hi, folks. Happy Friday, Sam. Howdy. Hi, Sam. Happy Friday. And Matt, you were observing that uh, these weeks do seem to almost feel interminable at some points, but, uh, but here we are at the end of another one. Yeah, we made it to another Friday, miraculously, every week that I feel like might be a, an easier, slower week never pans out that way. But um, such is, I, I guess, uh, life in a pandemic. And landing in our inboxes all week have been notifications of what the governor's doing with those various bills, including uh, yesterday we learned his actions on uh, two of the biggest ones that made it over the finish line, so to speak. One of them turns out it wasn't the finish line. Um, uh, Colin, can you walk us through what the governor had to say? When, and, and I should note that what he did with the climate change bill that made it to his desk was he could have waited and pocket vetoed it, and we might not have ever gotten to hear what his specific thoughts were in in making the decision to to not sign it but the fact that he actually vetoed it we got a nice message with his uh with his thoughts on the matter uh what ended up happening with that one well yeah you're exactly right he, he vetoed it um and he uh uh sort of put it back in the hands or in the lap of the legislature uh house speaker ron mariano and senate president karen spilka have already said that uh, they intend to bring the bill back to the floor and, and pass it anew uh, now that the uh, new legislative session has begun. And uh, if the governor were to veto it again, the legislature this time would uh, have the uh, time and the opportunity to override that veto. Um, so that's exactly what the governor did. Like you said, he, he vetoed it um, outright rather than pocket vetoing it. Um, and now it's uh, back in the hands of the legislature. But uh, what did he state in terms of his objections? Or do you think there's any chance that, like we saw with, say, the policing reform bill uh, at the very end of uh, the last session there, it got traded back and forth with like a, a compromise amendment, make it a little bit more palatable to the governor? Uh, or do you think the legislature just wants to get its bill through as written? 
Uh, depends who you ask. I mean, the governor clearly wants to to play that game of of um, amending it and, and trying to um, work out an agreement before uh, final passage, before the bill is actually on his desk. Um, it's it's not clear exactly whether that's what uh, Mariano and Spilka intend to do, or if they intend to put the exact same bill as passed. Uh, uh, right in the, the last couple of days of December uh, back on the floor and, and they may want to just pass it through uh, as is and uh, tell the governor, okay, we did it again. We stand by what we did, you know, back to you. What were his specific objections there? I mean, I, I know that that bill made a lot of directives to executive agencies and would have changed everything from specific policies at certain agencies to uh, setting specific mission statements for uh, some of his agencies. Uh, what, what exactly did he, did he cite as his reason for vetoing? Uh, he, he pointed to concerns from the uh, uh, commercial real estate industry, uh, folks who said that some of the provisions uh, in the bill, in the uh, climate change bill, would uh, affect uh, housing construction and would, um, these groups say, essentially slow it to a stop. Um, so that was, of course, that's an issue that's uh, of, of real importance to Governor Baker. He uh, finally got his housing choice uh, legislation. Uh, through um, something he's been talking about for years. Um, that was one of his primary concerns. Um, his administration, even before the legislature, uh, the conference committee even got its report out, his administration had uh, staked out its own uh, emissions reduction target for 2030 at 45% uh, below 1990 levels. The legislature came back and said, no, we want 50% reduction. Uh, Secretary of Energy and Environmental Affairs, um, Katie Theo Harides, uh, made clear to um, uh, the lead Senate conferee, Senator Barrett, uh, that that was essentially a non-starter for the administration. Mm. She had said that they had modeled out the, um, the differences between 45% by 2030 and 50% by 2030. Uh, but in the governor's veto letter on Thursday evening, he actually put a number to that and said that the difference would mean or could mean up to six billion dollars uh, for Massachusetts residents. Wow. And uh, you mentioned housing choice. A lot of this does go back to uh, housing production. Uh, and uh, Katie, uh, with the governor's actions on the uh, economic development bill last night, um, that's also a lot to do with his, his housing choice provisions. And then uh, some sections that he struck from the bill. Uh, and as we know, the fact, and as we've said, the fact that the legislature took this right up to the last minute meant that he was able to exercise his executive authority, sign the bill in part, throw out some sections. Um, what did he discard there? Yeah, so, so way back in, I don't even know if it was December or earlier January, but some point in the last session, um, if you guys can remember that, we mm, did have sure. a, a whole um, kind of question and almost a, a debate as to whether the governor would be able to line item veto this bill. And I guess we got our answer when he, in fact, um, sent back this bill, signed most of it into law and um, vetoed 11 outside sections. Um, three of those deal with uh, a, 
affordable unit requirement in um, in development projects that would benefit from a, a tax credit. He he says that that would make projects more difficult to finance. Kind of a a, a theme here. You could connect the two bills. He doesn't want um. He doesn't want it to be harder to build new housing. That's certainly something we, we've heard from the governor for years that it needs to be easier. Um, he vetoed a, a rural jobs tax credit and sections that people were closely watching around a, a local option um, for tenant right to purchase laws and a process of sealing records and eviction cases. So those are kind of the, the housing related matters um, of course, those are things that, you know, as far as that bill is concerned, they're just dead and done, but that doesn't stop any uh, interesting le interested legislators from refiling them, though we have seen kind of how tricky it's been to, to get an agreement on housing-related policy um, in the legislature in the past. Don't know if that'll be something they'll be interested in coming back to. Sure. Um, and... So that's sort of mopping up the two of the big ticket items. We're, we're still seeing action from the governor today. Actually, at 1.30 uh, this afternoon, 1.30 on uh, Friday, uh, governor is going to be signing the so-called uh, Laura's Law, which, which uh, Chris Lisinski, I know you covered way back at its committee hearing, and um, that had a a long run of advocacy, uh, whether it be in the pages of the Boston Globe uh, from Laura Levis's um, uh, husband, uh, all the way up through its action, I believe on the final day of the session. Um, what's the effect of that gonna be for someone who's trying to find an emergency room? Yeah, it's not gonna take effect immediately. It'll kick into effect somewhere between six months and a year after the state of emergency we're in ends. But once we do get over that hump into the the next stretch of reality here, uh, hospitals all across Massachusetts are gonna have to comply with sort of baseline standards on signage, on lighting, on wayfinding, basically aimed at ensuring that the outside of hospital buildings are really clear about where the emergency room is and how anyone who's having a medical crisis can get in and get the care that they need. Um, we're referring to this as Laura's Law because it's really inspired by the, the tragic death of Laura Levis, uh, many of our Listeners might have read about this. I think uh, Peter DeMarco, her widower, wrote this as losing Laura in the Boston Globe. Um, she was in her 30s, was suffering from a severe asthma attack, and tried to go to uh, a hospital in Somerville, but couldn't find the emergency room, went to a door that was locked, and tragically died right there outside the hospital, all because the, the signage was not clear, keeping doors unlocked were, uh, was, was not exactly followed. So, um, you know, this is really aimed at sort of patient safety and, and preventing this kind of horrible occurrence from ever happening again. Mm. So we're at the start of a new general court, folks, and sometimes an outside person who comes in from off the hill says, well, now we've got a new general court, bills are filed, we're going to get right to work. Um, but it, it takes time to set up the whole committee structure, leadership structure, get things referred to committees. So uh, Colin, as uh, we get into the new 
the new session. Uh, Speaker Ronald Mariano has some of these key positions to fill. Um, uh, which positions does he have the option to to put someone new into where there wasn't already? Uh, and, and of course, he might just shuffle everything around. We don't know. Um, but what are some of the definitely vacant positions? And who are some of the folks that you see um, potentially um, rising up in the ranks uh, in, in House leadership? Yeah, the obvious one is the position that uh, Mariano held uh, himself for the last decade, which is majority leader, uh, the, the number two position in the House. Um, so that's uh, an obvious vacancy that, that uh, he will have to fill. Uh, and like you said, uh, there's, there's nothing preventing uh, Speaker Mariano from, from uh, shuffling the whole deck and deciding to... Um, completely reassign everyone. Um, I would say it's probably more likely that um, it won't be a, a complete reshuffle. If you think about it, Mariano has been part of uh, the leadership team in the House uh, for, like I said, a decade and more. Um, so he, you know, in a lot of ways, the, the, the former D'Elia leadership structure uh, was in some ways also the Mariano leadership structure. He was the number two. Uh, so he's familiar with working with a lot of the people who have already been in leadership. Um, so I'd say two who, who are in leadership now who um, might be uh, in line to, to move up maybe to that majority leader position uh, would be uh, Reps Joe Wagner from Chicopee, Paul Donato of Medford, and Mike Moran of Boston. Uh, they are all uh, or had been assistant majority leaders. Uh, so any number, any one of them uh, could be elevated to that majority leader position. Uh, and then of course that would open up uh, additional assistant majority leader positions. Uh, the speaker will also have to um, decide what to do with the speaker pro tem position. Uh, Rep Pat Haddad from Somerset uh, holds that position or held that position most recently. Uh, and when Mariano was first elected speaker at the very end of last session, uh, Haddad was the only other, uh, was, was also, uh, I should say, Haddad was reappointed as speaker pro tem to, to finish out the session because that office uh, is automatically vacated when the speaker's office is vacated. Uh, let's see. Uh, he'll also, you know, like I said, can put new people in any uh, committee chairmanship, uh, but a couple of the big ones that he will definitely have to uh, appoint someone to fill um, is the uh, Committee on Healthcare Financing, which there's been a lot of turnover on over the last couple of sessions um, between chairs, vice chairs. Uh, so there will definitely be new uh, a new chairperson atop the uh, Committee on Healthcare Financing uh, and also the Committee on Public Safety and Homeland Security. Uh, Rep. Hank Naughton had been chairing that a committee for the last number of years. Uh, he did not seek re-election this year. So that's another uh, definite vacancy for Mariano to fill. Yeah, and in interesting to see who he slots into healthcare financing since, that, since that's um, always been a, a key issue area for the new speaker and uh, one of the top priorities that he identified as, as, as he took the office. Um, and of course, uh, yeah, we, we don't know what other shuffling might occur. And if he elevates someone like judiciary uh, co-chair Rep. Claire Cronin uh, into a leadership position, then he would have to fill uh, a committee chairmanship such as that one. Uh, that's a, a very sort of key high-ranking uh, chairmanship. Um, I'd also say too that uh, 
you know, we sometimes refer to leadership as, you know, speaker, majority leader, assistant, majority leader, speaker pro tem, uh, those sort of formal positions. Uh, but it remains to be seen exactly how Ron Mariano is going to run his house leadership. Um, you know, Bob DeLeo used to have these uh, leadership meetings on Mondays where he would pull his, you know, formal leadership team in. Uh, but he also would pull committee chairs in, to, you know, based on what what they were talking about, or or pull other uh, people into the conversation who weren't necessarily um, who didn't necessarily hold these titles. Uh, so that's something Mariano might continue. He may have a completely uh, new way of uh, organizing his leadership uh, within the house. So uh, that'll be something to watch as the session gets going. Right. And uh, just to refresh our collective memory, uh, about how long does it take before those sorts of appointments usually uh, come out? Usually the end of January, early February, sometime um, around there. Uh, remember, a couple of years ago, it was much later uh, because the session began with uh, the vote on legislative pay raises. Right. So in that year, that was, what, four years ago now? I believe. Um, I think you're right. Yes. That um, in, in that case, they had to wait because the way the, the stipends work for uh, chairmanships and leadership positions, uh, the, everyone had basically had to vote on the raises before they knew what position they might get. So they Bef weren't before directly they got a voting on their own pay raise. Right, right. That's a very good point. Um, all right. Well, so we'll definitely be watching that. And um, as we look ahead toward next week, oh, sorry, Katie. Yeah, I just um, wanted to jump in um, a yes. while ago. I actually did this out and because it was a slog of work, I wanna keep getting uh, mileage out of it. <laughs> the committee and leadership assignments for House and Senate Democrats over the past decade uh, have been done in a window ranging from January 21st to February 26th. So, <laughs> Could be, uh, could be within the next uh, week or so, although we haven't seen like necessarily an indication of that. And that's, you know, only if, if past practice holds. But there, you get a long window, depending sure. on whatever weirdness arises. And certainly, as we know, weirdness has been arising. Weirdness abounds, for sure. And um, I'm, I'm sure that there were a lot of face-to-face -face or in-person meetings in the past as... Uh, they got ready to make those appointments in, in prior sessions and um, not sure how the, how the process might differ where a representative used to get a, a letter at their office asking for input on what their preferences were for committee assignments and um, this time around uh, exactly how that process will be handled. Uh, uh, not, uh, not sure. Um, as we look ahead to next week, I want to pull Matt Murphy into the uh, into the conversation here, um, because uh, he's been uh, reporting a fair bit on both uh, security uh, for the state capitals as well as security for the federal capital, um, because uh, that FBI memo came to light. Uh, what was that early this week that got everybody? Uh, well, I, I, I can speak for myself. My phone was blowing up from folks I might not have even heard from for a while who were saying, we just saw on the news that uh, there's security risks for all 50 state capitals, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but uh, Matt, 
as we uh, checked around with um, security folks around Massachusetts, um, it, it seems there is currently no specific or, or, or credible threat uh, at the Boston uh, Capitol. Um, what's, uh, what's, what's the status of all that? Because I know that some folks have been, uh, have been a little alarmed about that and understandably so. Uh, what's, what's our current threat level, so to speak? Well, you're right, Sam. I mean, I think we've all read uh, the national reports on that FBI bulletin and the conversations that the FBI uh, and the Department of Homeland Security and other federal law enforcement agencies have been having uh, with states and local uh, police chiefs warning of, of possible uh, violent unrest in the run up to uh, the inauguration uh, on uh, the 20th. Uh, but we have heard repeatedly this week from uh, Governor Charlie Baker and uh, from uh, law enforcement in Massachusetts that there are no known threats uh, to the state house, to any government buildings or anywhere else in Massachusetts. Now uh, that could change. The governor says that uh, they are, his administration is in, in constant contact with uh, the fusion center. That is a um, a, a law enforcement hub that brings together state, federal, local officials uh, so that they can share intelligence uh, and monitoring. But uh, the message uh, from the administration continues to be no known threats. Uh, but of course, that could change at any time. We do know that yesterday, um, uh, Thursday, the governor uh, signed orders uh, activating the National Guard. Uh, 500 troops are being deployed to Washington, D.C. to assist with uh, security uh, in the run-up to the inauguration and for Inauguration Day, and another 500 uh, National Guardsmen will be on standby here in Massachusetts that the governor said uh, will be ready to be deployed uh, should any uh, city or uh, towns uh, request uh, backup because of uh, situations unfolding on the ground there or concerns they might have about uh, groups uh, planning anything or uh, gathering in mass. Sure. So uh, while while currently no specific or, or, or credible threat here on Beacon Hill, um, understandably, uh, some folks are are a little uh, spooked by the whole thing, and, and we hope that everyone stays very safe next week. Um, as we look ahead to what is hopefully a uh, a brighter, more COVID-free year. Um, uh, Katie, I want to, uh, and actually, uh, Chris Lasinski, you, you, you as well, uh, about the um, rollout of the vaccine that hopefully is just going to turn this year around and make it so much better than 2020 was. Um, uh, where do we stand now as doses are uh, heading down to congregate care facilities at the uh, start of next week? Um, what comes after that? And if you're, if you're just some uh, 75-year-old person um, living at home, um, what's, uh, what's the outlook for you getting a vaccine sometime soon? Yeah, Sam, I think you, you raise an interesting point there because it, it, you kind of zero in on a, a source of some of the, the consternation that we've been hearing that, you know, um, people in um, nursing homes and, and those types of facilities have had the vaccine start rolling out there. But if you're, you know, in your 90s and living independently, 
you're you're still waiting for phase two, which is on the horizon. It's eyed for February. Um, this week was first responder week. Next week is congregate care week. So that includes shelters, um, group homes, jails, prisons. Um, and then after that, we still get a couple more groups in phase one. It's home-based healthcare workers, healthcare workers who aren't part of that initial first, first, first part of the first phase. Um, we have so many phases going now, it's hard to keep track of which one's a phase and which one's a step and <laughs> um, which one's a group within a phase. But the, the initial chunk of vaccines, I'm gonna call it, went to uh, healthcare workers involved in the pandemic response directly. Um, and then the kind of other healthcare workers who might be working on non-COVID uh, conditions and treating different types of patients, they're, they're the last group in this first phase. Um, of course, because it, the plans for vaccination were really left out to the states, they, um, a lot of states are doing things differently. Massachusetts has been focusing on really a, a targeted set of populations initially. So, you know, in other states, you might hear of a focus on those people who are older than 75 already getting their vaccinations as part of the early wave. Um, and a lot of people in Massachusetts are still waiting to find out when their vaccines will come, even those who are in phase two, including essential workers, teachers, um, people with higher risk conditions. And, the, the, you know, the governor said that the the kind of slow rollout of information has been deliberate because they're they need to wait to know when they get doses that'll be available they don't want to overpromise and you know have to back up if they don't get a shipment that they were guessing would come um, but at this point we have about as of yesterday's report from the department of public health about 33,000 people who have been fully vaccinated gotten both doses so that's a that's a sign of some progress of course you take that as a you know percentage of the state's population of mm. almost seven million and you're you're still still in the very 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 early stages yeah thirty three thousand is like one large town um chris Lisinski, you were on a a call with some Cape Cod officials the other day and they've they've been doing this great uh Cape Cod reopening task force thing where they have these regular um, uh, Zoom briefings, and um, you were on one the other day where you you, you heard some um, some concern, some worry about messaging on the vaccine and availability of information. Yeah, we should note the key distinction there that the officials who spoke, um, mainly it was Senator Julian Sear, a Truro Democrat who chairs that reopening task force defended the way that the vaccines have been rolled out, said it's really necessary for it to be deliberate and targeted because that's the approach that the state is taking. And like Katie had mentioned, we don't want to overpromise um, vaccine availability and then have to take it away from people or have to, to have them change their plans. But he acknowledged that the, the CAPE reopening task force, and I would imagine a lot of other elected officials all across the state have been hearing frustration from the public uh, at what kind of information they're getting. I mean, a good example of this, Sam, I think your original question was about older adults. This week, we read lots of media reports, including our own, that the CDC now wants adults 75 and older, or no, 65 and older. 
Now wants adults 65 and older to be pushed into the first phase of vaccine rollout. And I think that the governor's response was, yeah, we've read those reports too, but we haven't gotten an official bulletin from the CDC. So Hmm. we'll have our advisory committee review that, but we're not moving full steam ahead into that because it's not exactly an official federal policy yet. So there still does seem to be a disconnect between the information that people are seeing and hearing about and what they're actually getting from the states that is creating some frustration in the public. But, uh, you know, anyone you ask who can make a, a difference on that is really reiterating the be patient message that this is all for a reason and we'll all uh, be over soon enough. And Colin, uh, something that surprised me this week was a story that you wrote, as, as, as Katie mentioned, the congregate care or uh, congregate living uh, facilities that be able to get the vaccine starting on Monday include um, county houses of correction, state prisons. And uh, I was surprised by the percentage of folks at, I think it was um, the Middlesex County House of Correction, um, who responded to a survey and said that they didn't want to get the vaccine when when they become eligible for it. Um, Do we know why such a large number of them, I think it was uh, 60%, why such a large number of them are so skeptical or hesitant or uninterested? Yeah, that was one of the um, survey questions that they they asked specifically. I just want to pull up the the numbers here to make sure I have them Correct. You're right, Santa. 60% um, of the 406 people incarcerated uh, up in Billerica said that they would not uh, take a COVID-19 vaccine, an FDA-approved COVID-19 vaccine that was given to them free of charge. 60% said as of right now they would not be willing uh, to take that, and of course vaccination is, is done on a voluntary basis. Uh, so of those who said that they would refuse the vaccine uh, right now, um, 34% of them said that they weren't a hard no and that they could be willing to change their mind based on um, either getting more information, um, seeing, you know, uh, people they know get the vaccine and how it goes for them. That's one thing I've heard, not just people who are incarcerated, but uh, people everywhere have said, you know, I don't need to be the first to get it. I'd rather see how, you know, my colleague who gets it first, see how they fare, hear about the experience from them, and then make the decision for myself. Um, so the the top concern uh, among the people uh, incarcerated up in the Middlesex um, House of Correction uh, was the safety and effectiveness of the vaccine. There were uh, just more than 31% of people Uh, who said they would decline the vaccine, cited safety and effectiveness as their concern. Uh, Just under 30% said they had a general distrust of vaccines, uh, and that's why uh, they would uh, refuse the COVID vaccine. Uh, And 16% said that they needed more information uh, on this particular vaccine before making their decision. So Sheriff Peter Katusian did this uh, survey so he would have this kind of baseline information before anyone starts getting vaccinated. You know, who's interested in taking it now? Uh, and, and then his office would be able to go back and see, oh, you know, 16% said they need more information. Let's make that information available to people and, and hopefully boost the number of people who uh, do volunteer to get the vaccine. Hmm. <clears throat> hmm. Well, 
all those folks who said that they, at least right now, aren't aren't interested in getting it in that one spot. And I've I've heard from people I'm acquainted with uh, who are eligible at this point who don't want it yet, largely because of what you say, Colin. They want to see how it goes for other folks. Um, but that we've heard um, uh, when the governor went out to Bay State Medical Center in Springfield a week or two ago. Um, they talked about this selfie station they have in Holyoke where uh, Bay State medical folks were getting the vaccine uh, and seeing that that was a really effective tool to convince other healthcare workers uh, to get vaccinated was seeing their colleagues um, who, who, so to speak, had a positive experience uh, with it and that that um, sort of helped grease the skids for some other folks. Sure, but all those folks might be eligible right now, but not getting it at this time, the vaccines have an expiration date, right, on on the doses. So I think that would cause um, the average listener to say, well, if if I want it, uh, is is that dose going to go to waste, or, or what's going to to happen to it? What 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 happens to an, an unused dose in a situation like that? Well, so far, at least as of this week, uh, the governor said that there has been uh, no spoilage. Uh, in doses of the the two COVID vaccines that have been approved, um, and, and right, I don't understand exactly what the expiration timeline is, but at least to this point in Massachusetts, um, none of the doses that have been shipped here have have gone to waste, so to speak. Um, you know, every uh, dose of the vaccine so far has has you know gone into someone's arm. All right. Well, here's hoping that. Uh that the vaccine turns things around for us. And hey, maybe maybe with significant vaccination by the 4th of July, uh, maybe we could have a, a nice uh, 4th of July news service outing. Who knows? Um, we'll have to see how this year goes. Folks, thank you very much for joining us. It's great to have the the full stable of news service reporters here on the, on the Zoom screen. And uh, hope that next week feels a little bit less interminable i think was the word that the word that we used at the top of the podcast as we hope for every friday <laughs> short week so that's we'll see how we can squeeze into four days see how many days four days feels like exactly exactly all right take care folks Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.